A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. I'm Elliot. We're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Something we wanted to touch on quickly right out, right off the bat was we were sitting around this week and thinking about, we haven't said a word about the WGA or the SAG after strikes, which is a bit remiss for us. As we, for all intents and purposes, are movie journalists. Um, yeah, we're journalists. Yeah. And um, <laughs> we watch a lot of movies and those people write and star in a lot of the movies that we watch, if not all of them. Um, so, yeah, just wanted to quickly touch on that. Yeah, we think the whole thing's fucked <laughs> and people deserve to be compensated appropriately for the work that they do and it's it's a really challenging thing to see less and less work go to the writers and yet more and more is expected of them and with the dawning of artificial intelligence and the things that people could could utilize those for and take jobs away from people or you know the the stuff they want to do with actors is fucked of how they kind of scan them and it's like a one and done. It's like now we have your identity and we're just going to we're just going to throw your likeness into films and not pay you residuals or anything like that. The the whole thing is really scary, really messy. And the future of films is very much up in the air and in question as big films are getting pushed and not getting completed. But I think that's important. Like I, I think it's important to say that we support the strikes going on as long as they have to mm-hmm. so that people can be protected in their jobs, compensated fairly in their jobs and treated fairly in their jobs. Cause it's not just about wage. It's also about other things too. Yeah, absolutely. I saw this really great video from an actor that uh, he was just explaining how he's been an actor, a working actor for over 20 years and he's been in many things, but He's not a well-known, he's not a Meryl Streep, he's 
not somebody of that caliber, but it is his job and it's, it is his income. And right now he can't support his family. He doesn't have access to the healthcare that he needs and people that have been in an industry that has supported them for as long as they have. And they've, they've given their time and their efforts and their talent deserve to be compensated. Just to, just to understand that correctly, that like prior to the strike, he couldn't support his family and didn't have healthcare. Yeah. 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 That it's not because of the strike that he's saying he can't support his family. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. That's, that's correct. Because I mean, that is a tricky thing. Like striking puts the most vulnerable people in increasingly vulnerable positions. Mm -hmm. Um, and, there are a number of well-known actors who recently donated to SAG-AFTRA in quantities of over a million or more mm-hmm. so that they could support some of these people who, like, they, they have no income right now. Um, but one of the things that's important for us to talk about is that part of the demands of SAG-AFTRA are that, like, journalists not report on movies. And there are, like, a lot of people we follow, follow on Letterboxd who are not reviewing new movies um, we talked about it. And one of the reasons we're going to continue to do this is we don't make any money from it. Yeah. And there aren't a lot of you who listen to us, <laughs> but those of you who do, we love you. Um, yeah. so, you know, we support the strike. We support unions and striking. Um, and we support however long it's going to take for movies to hopefully come back being made, uh, as ethically as possible with the people involved in them being treated as ethically as possible and compensated as ethically as possible. We're very happy that A24 is meeting the demands of SAG-AFTRA so that some of those films, which would be probably our most favorite films anyway, Mm -hmm. are going to continue to come out. But um, yes. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. We like, and I kind of did some digging on the SAG-AFTRA site and we definitely fall within what is allowed that is in support of the, of the strike and what we're doing is not, breaking any rules or any of the things that they've laid out people shouldn't be doing in solidarity with the strike. Um, oh, cool. So yeah, we're, we're not breaking any rules. No, we're just a couple little guys in a basement saying our stuff, but yeah, not making any money. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> but having a lot of fun, having a blast. So but- yeah, if you, if you don't know about the strikes and you haven't, I mean, I think it's worth reading through like the demands of SAG-AFTRA because when you see, often how little they're asking for and how big studios are refusing to meet that. You realize that it's pretty gross. Um, And then some of the things that they're just kind of preemptively looking towards with AI and stuff, it's, you know, I think that this sets a precedent for other jobs as well. Um, And I really hope that the union is able to hold the strike until they get what they want, because I do think it's going to, have an effect on other landscapes that are dealing with similar issues. Yeah, totally. And I feel like this, this sort of thing is definitely a lot closer to your line of work in the sense that you're part of a union. And if the teachers in Alberta were to go on strike, you would have to participate in that as well. We don't go on strike as a province. We go on strike as districts. Right. So, but I would have to. Yes, this is true. Yeah. Uh, I am just... We did do a strike vote a couple of years ago, last year maybe. Yeah. And it was like close. Very close. Yeah. Meanwhile, I am I just, I work in the private sector. Just a shill. Just pushing pixels and... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Not as cool. 
Well, you just don't have the protections. <laughs> I don't have the protection. But we did watch six movies. We did. And we should talk about them. We should. Let's get into the first one. So we went back to Metro Cinema for the last film in their Land of Lynch series. So we kind of bookended it. We went to the first one in the series and we went to the last one in the series in the theater. And we saw 1980's The Elephant Man. It's a biography slash drama. It was directed by David Lynch. And it was written by Christopher DeVore, Eric Berggren, and David Lynch, based on the book by Frederick Frederick Traves and Ashley Montague. Two different books. Yeah. Stars. Sir Anthony Hopkins as Dr. Frederick Traves. John Hurt as John Merrick. Anne Bancroft as Mrs. Kendall. Uh, Wendy Hiller as Mother's Head. Freddie Jones as Bites. Um, Michael... Elphick as Night Porter and Hannah Gordon as Mrs. Traves. Synopsis. A Victorian surgeon rescues a heavily disfigured man who is mistreated while, scra- while scraping a living as a sideshow freak. Behind his monstrous facade, there is revealed a person of kindness, intelligence, and sophistication. What do you think of Elephant Man? I don't love that synopsis, but I couldn't find a better one myself. So I know. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little icky, but... Um, so I saw this movie for the first time when I was 12, which is wild. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't remember much about watching it other than I'm fairly certain I saw it with my friend Keely at her house. We were friends at the time. Um, and I'm assuming I was the one who was interested in watching it because I was really into urban legends and I had books about like the history of freak shows as a 12 year old. (laughs) Um, weird. And I didn't know who David Lynch was for many years after this, but I guess this was the first David Lynch film that I ever saw. And I haven't really revisited it, which is also interesting to me because um, in my first undergrad degree, I did an honors degree where I had to write a thesis. And my thesis was on what I argued was like the proliferation of the history of freak shows in TV and movies. And I, I did like a ton of research into a ton of research. That's so... Um, but I, I was researching um, other people's thoughts about how freak shows like persist in different ways, even though we don't have like the actual sites that we go to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I specifically was looking at the fourth season of the television show Nip Tuck, which if anybody's watched it, that's the season where Sean has a child and the child is born with ectodactyly and he's like obsessed with changing his hand. Um, and it's also Peter Dinklage is in that season as the son's nanny. And um, he was another like key focus of my analysis. So I'm surprised I didn't revisit The Elephant Man at that time. I'm almost certain I would have read research about the movie. But I have like a real history of like looking deeply at the way that non-normative embodiment is depicted on screen. Mm-hmm. And how that ties to like historical treatment of people with bodies that we don't consider so-called normal. So it was really interesting to revisit it. I had totally forgot about all that stuff. <laughs> Just a year <laughs> of my life and the thing that, you know. Well, it was like. My crowning academic achievement you've forgotten. Well, I think I had forgotten it in the context of. You could bring that to the conversation about the elephant man that like you are actually I'm learned a learned person about uh, this. I'm stuff. a learned person in representations of bodies and specifically like 
you know, it's this weird kind of cross section of I did a lot of research on disability, but what I was focusing on more was like representations of bodies, mm. um, which didn't necessarily have to do with disability per se, but um, the ways in which we look at bodies that don't read as normal the way that we represent them um, and, and why people are fascinated with that. And one of the things that um, I put forward in my research in tandem with um, kind of the two scholars that I was most well, there's three scholars that I, I, I use the most, which is Rosemary Garland Thompson, Alison Kafer, who wrote one of the best academic text, texts on this called Feminist Queer Crip. Um, and then Robert McCrewer, who is the person who theorized Crip theory, which is kind of um, tandem with queer theory, but about uh, ability, disability and embodiment. But one of the things that a lot of these scholars put forward is that the freak or the freak show is as much about gender and as much about like, species and humanity and race as it is about disability because the freak was the half man half woman and it was the elephant man mm -hmm. and it was um the little person and it was right so the bearded lady yeah so you've got all of these kind of um you also had people who were like like uh there's a lot of like kinship with people doing fat activism because they all they had like like large people and like, you know, I don't, I don't want to use the language of freak shows because a lot of it is really gross. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of my research suggested that there's, there's a lot of kinship and potential like generative crossovers through the freak, like through the figure of the freak, because my favorite thing that these researchers have put forward about the freak as a concept is that the reason they suggest people are fascinated with freaks and have been then and now is that the freak shows us that these categories are already failed. Mm -hmm. That like there isn't that much distinction between a man and a woman. There isn't that much distinction between an elephant and a human. There isn't that much distinction between a thin body and a fat body, right? That these categories we create and we prop them up as normal, but they are already failed mm -hmm. and they already aren't singular um, and perfect. And I was a little nervous going into this film because I love David Lynch. And as we've now shown, even though you forgot, I am a learned person <laughs> on not just histories of freak shows, like the reality and historical treatment of people within freak shows, but also specifically representations of freak shows and then non-normative bodies in television and film throughout history. Like I've, spent a year of my life looking at this. Mm -hmm. um, so I was nervous that I would be really, I would find this really unethical, but I didn't, but I did. And I didn't. So in terms of like what Lynch is doing, I thought that his film is doing some really interesting stuff in like confronting the viewer with a fascination with John Merrick mm -hmm. through like a motif of looking. Mm hmm. Because that's what traditionally was happening in freak shows is people are paying money to go and look. Mm -hmm. um, and other people have kind of written about this better than I have. But in the film, we don't actually see John for quite a long time. We see other people seeing him. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it actually makes us look at the lookers more than it makes us look at John. 
And we're often in these tight close-ups of people responding to the way John looks. Um, and we see awe and we see disgust and we see fear and we see sadness and we see these kind of range of emotions. But the first time we properly see John, it's a longer shot. He's just like in bed. Um, and it's much more focused on how someone else reacts to him than it is on the way he looks. And I, I kind of, the thought that I had about that was that it turns the lens on the people and almost makes them the quote unquote freaks. Absolutely. And in turn, us, the viewer. Exactly. Because we are also looking. And I thought there was a particularly critical shot for that in that there's a like a close up in the, in the same way that we've been closing up on people's faces as they look at John. There's a close up on a camera. And that kind of very pointedly reminds us that in watching a film, we are also a looker. Mm-hmm. And that the camera is a looker and that you know, David Lynch is implicated in this process of looking through the creation of the film. So I thought that uh, the film was very aware of itself in that context. And I thought it was doing really interesting things. I never, f- I've, I've haven't had many experiences watching a film where I've felt both wrapped up and taken by the story that's on screen, but also so focused on as an, a member of the audience yeah. watching this story, which I thought was really powerful in and itself. I th- think we probably felt that more seeing it in the theater big time yeah um not, and we sat pretty close to the front and i think that that was really it was yeah it was really powerful um i found the movie to be you know revisiting it in my 30s when i saw it for the first time when i was 12 and then in between having spent a lot of my academic life focused on how bodies are represented in film and what that means for the way that we understand bodies and ourselves found it really moving mm-hmm. yeah i found this yeah it was just heartbreakingly beautiful like the like that synopsis i read says like when it's revealed when we finally get into the meat of the story which is john merrick and who he is as a person and revealing his kindness and his intelligence and his sophistication which has just been for all intents and purposes beaten out of him over the years uh in at least that's what the movie suggests and once his personality starts coming through and the interactions that he starts having in his in his life with these new people that he's meeting through the character of frederick traves there's some real beauty in this in this story and in this movie yeah this movie was really hard to watch in that there's some very awful like treatment of other people in this. I mean, particularly treatment of John mm-hmm. and then there's some really beautiful treatment as well. And I mean, when I stop and think about it in like a purely intellectual academic lens, I'm like, well, he shouldn't have to be as the synopsis says a person revealed to be of sophistication and intelligence for us to want to treat him well mm-hmm. and with dignity. So that's, you know, a little troubling, but the film definitely shows what it means to treat somebody with dignity. And I thought it was really, really beautiful. How Lynchian do you think it is? I think that, I think that I was quite taken with how Lynch approached this, this story. I feel like it is very, 
<laughs> I don't know what the right word is, but for Lynch, this is a very straight story, even though he has a film called The Straight Story. It's it's very accessible, but it is definitely not without some of its trademark Lynch, Lynchisms, specifically bookending the movie in the very beginning and at the very end. There is that sort of abstractness, dreamlike quality to it. Um, and there's like bits of that peppered throughout. Like there's some shots of just kind of the city that we're in and the landscape and we're lingering on like exhaust coming from a place or like steam or like smoke coming from a smokestack, like just Lynch wanting to set a tone for the place. I mean, it does feel very, this is a second movie and people saw Eraserhead and offered him this, you know, watching Eraserhead in this as like a double feature would be really interesting because Eraserhead feels like an intensely personal and abstract look at the world but Eraserhead, or I mean, sorry, Elephant Man does feel like it's in the same, it's playing in the same sandbox. It's just a different, it's somebody else's story. Mm-hmm. But I mean, they're both black and white. They're both in these kind of more rundown, icky, mm-hmm. <laughs> like pipey, yeah, pipey, pipey, cobble, streety um, places. And I do feel like what the film is exploring is very Lynchian. Yeah. And I feel like this film is perhaps looking at like the nightmare of what it means to be a human. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, it's great too, because there is that exploration of being a human. And then there is that extreme kindness that exists. And like, that's, that's where the most emotional parts for me were, it were in these moments of kindness throughout. And I see that sort of kindness reflected in Twin Peaks. Yeah. Just like this reveling in the kindness and the openness of certain people that are around. Often in extreme juxtaposition to the opposite, right? Like the most inhumane cruelty. I feel like that's something that Lynch is always exploring is those Mm -hmm. two ends of humanity. Yeah. I thought something that was really nice when 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 I was reflecting on this movie something I thought was interesting was that this is a a story through the lens of Frederick Traves uh, of, of learning and unlearning. Like I, and I think for the time they wouldn't necessarily have that, that sort of language or that sort of the sort of worldview that we have now of thinking bigger picture or kind of thinking uh, of self-reflection and wanting to adjust how one thinks about things. Cause I mean, he's Frederick Traves is not a over the top kind person, especially in the beginning. Once he discovers John Merrick, but through the story, you see him as he's learning about John Merrick and becoming more friendly with him and uncovering truths that he, I'm sure he wasn't aware that he was going to uncover both about John, but also about himself and then his process of unlearning all of these preconceived notions that he had about John or people like John. And then it sort of culminating in a friendship that was really beautiful and had some really beautiful moments, especially by the end of the film. And Anthony Hopkins is such a baby face in this. Yeah. It's strange to watch him be so young, but he's, so good <laughs> this, is, this is his um other side of the coin to Hannibal Lecter for sure <laughs> yeah um 
This is where things get tricky, though, because I, I agree with you. I really liked the representation of Traves. And, I, you know, I think I said at the time, this to me shows more complexity in terms of internal thought and consequences of your actions than Oppenheimer does. Mm. Like I found Traves to be a figure not unlike what Christopher Nolan is attempting to do with Killian Murphy in Oppenheimer. And I was more moved by the way Traves interrogates himself where it gets tricky, like with Oppenheimer, is that this is based on real people. And when you start to actually look at what we know of not John, but Joseph Merrick's life, that was his real name. And the real Frederick Traves didn't write his name properly in the book he wrote. And that has proliferated the wrong name throughout history. So already that's troubling. Mm-hmm. Um, when you start to look at that, this film is not a very accurate depiction of Joseph Merrick's life. Um, first in that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a, only a portion of his life because there's more you can look at with what's been done with his body since then, the way that we, that people continue to be fascinated with him as ongoing forms of exploitation, exhibition, and harm that the film obviously doesn't look at because it doesn't look at him post death, but also the representation of him as like juxtaposed between this kindly empathetic Traves and this exploitative, harmful, I can't remember the guy's name, but the the person who's exhibiting him before Traves comes in bites, right. Um, Isn't true to, to real life in real life, at least what we know and what we know is filtered through what other people have written about uh, Joseph Merrick is that he was really well loved by his mother He had a really good relationship with her. And then she died when he was, I think, like 11 or 12. And his stepfather was not, or sorry, his father and his stepmother were not as kindly to him. He really struggled as his disability hindered his ability to physically work as it like he was getting more growths. Um, He struggled to find work. And he, at least as it's represented in historical writing, he was the one who made a partnership to be exhibited in freak shows because that was a way to make money Mm -hmm. and that he actually had much more agency and much more partnership with the people that he was working with and that he was paid. um, They really like make it a very Pinocchio Stromboli thing. And that's not to say that didn't happen. It for sure did. Um, But I think when we look at narratives of things like freak shows, we, it's not entirely ethical to totally strip these people of their agency. And I think to look at the complicated ways that people may be exerting agency within an exploitative structure is important, Mm -hmm. right? That we can both understand that this is a harmful system and a harmful structure and understand that people had some agency within it. So Joseph Merrick had far more agency and he wasn't, there's things that happen in the film that did not happen in real life that just prop Traves up as an even more amazing person. Mm -hmm. Um, Even as the film does interrogate the ethics of him, but in, you know, the, in real life, Traves wrote this book that is now this like document about Joseph Merrick's life, which we don't, we know is not entirely accurate. And then that's one of the main bases for this movie itself. So, I love the movie on its own, but then when I start to think about it as a biopic, I'm like, oh, it's not, it's not very ethical because it kind of, first of all, it doesn't get the, doesn't get John, John Merrick's name right because his name is Joseph Merrick. Second of all, it leaves out some of the more, the ways that John had more, Joseph 
had more agency. And then it also doesn't explore anything about what happened to him after death and the way that his body has been preserved and used in ways that perhaps we should be thinking about because he was a man of faith and his body should probably have been um, laid to rest the way he would have wanted it to. Mm -hmm. Right. So all of that, when it becomes comes time to thinking about it as a biopic, I'm like, Oh now I feel really tricky about it because if somebody watches this film and thinks they know the story of Merrick and Traves, they're actually, they actually don't. Yeah. My hope is that people are able to see the movie because I, I'm with you. I quite enjoyed the movie more than I, th- I thought that I was going to. I was quite moved by it and uh, I loved it. But my hope for it is that people don't go into it necessarily to take away a truth, but to in engage them and their curiosity to seek out the, the, the truer history of Joseph Merrick. And but this is the, the trouble, right? Like, so this is a quote from um, a writer named Nadja Durback who says that we have to understand any narrative about Joseph Merrick as a reconstructions that re- this is a quote from her as narrative reconstructions that reflect personal and professional prejudices and cater to the, de- the demands and expectations of their very different audiences. So anything we know about Joseph Merrick is filtered through somebody's lens because we don't have a biography. Even if he wrote a biography about himself, even that is not necessarily going to be the 100% truth of things. Right. Mm -hmm. So I would just encourage anybody who sees a biopic to not take it as truth. Oh, hundred percent. We've talked about this so much on the show. Like take it. And I I feel like Lynch understands that which is maybe why I have less of an issue with the elephant man than I do with like a Jackie or an Oppenheimer. And I, and I think Oppenheimer understands that to a degree too, mm-hmm. but that we have to understand when we go and see these things that they're representations of stories of people who existed. Yeah. And specifically biopics aren't there to necessarily give you the facts. It's taking the facts to make a compelling movie. A compelling and not story. always taking the facts. I mean, as we look at this, which is based on two texts that tell two different stories about Joseph Merrick's life, and even those texts are not entirely true, right? Like we have representations of representations of representations of eventually a real person. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, a lot to think about with that. And, And I like that. I like that the film makes me think about these things. And obviously, as we've talked about, since I am so learned on them, I perhaps have more of a vested interest in thinking about them a couple cool pieces of trivia though first of all this was nominated for just a shit ton of oscars did you know that i didn't know a shit ton so best picture best actor for john hurt best art direction slash set direction i don't think that's a category anymore best costume design best director best film editing best original score and best adapted screenplay it did not win any of them (laughs) but it was nominated for all of them not uh anthony hopkins no well well all right um I think this is the coolest thing, though, that I learned about this is that people were outraged that there was no award at the Oscars for the makeup. Like Mm. for um, John Hurt's like physical portrayal of Joseph Merrick and because there was no category at the time for makeup. Mm. and people were just like this was so astounding like this should be getting awards and so they didn't have an award for makeup that year but in response to the way that people talked about it and the way that there was craft and it was so relevant to the film 
they then created a makeup category that existed the next year when American Werewolf in London won. And and now there's still a category to this day, isn't there? Yeah. So that category exists because of the Elephant Man. That's cool to know. It's really cool. <laughs> you almost wish that they got like a a post <laughs> in in memoriam. Um, <laughs> another really cool thing is one of the main people who worked on this film was Mel Brooks. Did you know that? I think I did actually. Yeah. But he didn't want his name attached to it because he felt people would think it was a comedy and would view yeah. it through the lens of comedy if they saw his name on it. So I think that is some very ethical thinking mm-hmm. of like this story matters and I want to be involved in the story, but I know that my name draws a connection to like satire and comedy. Um, he also was like a big, at least as the stories tell it, a really big proponent of like letting Lynch do his thing. So they screened a version of it to Paramount and Paramount wanted the opening and closing scenes cut, like the very Lynchian scenes Mm. and history or internet documents tell us that this is what Mel Brooks said when they said that, that he said, quote, we are involved in a business venture. We screened the film for you to bring you up to date as to the status of that venture. Do not misconstrue this as our misconstrue. This as our soliciting the input of raging primitives. Oh, man, way to stand behind your art. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> fuck you. Fuck you. And fuck you. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, So, yeah, I was just thinking, like, I think that that was some very smart thinking from Mel Brooks to keep his name off of it. Because can you just imagine like, from the creator of Spaceballs or if like it's like Monty Python presents Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> Same movie, but Monty Python like backed it. <laughs> yeah, that definitely makes it makes it feel different. Um. Yeah, this the one of the last things I want to say about this, which is really interesting to me, is that a lot of critics called this film excessively sentimental and like were critical of it in that way, that it was overly sentimental. And all I have to say is, I don't care. Go fuck, go fuck yourself. <laughs> I really loved this movie. I do think there's lots to think about, both as like a piece of art, as a critical examination of what it's looking at from Lynch's own viewpoint. Like, I think he's very aware of it. And then also thinking about just like the history of representation of people's real stories, especially when they're not around and then they didn't write an, enough documents for us to really know what they would have thought of it. Um, lots of complicated things, but I, but I did truly love it. Yeah. And I, I think that's really great. And I really appreciate you sharing all of those things because I, I think that that is kind of the beautiful thing about this movie and movies like it is that it can give you such a wonderful experience that you can take so much away from both joyful or complex and complicated. And I think that's, I think that's really great. Or both. Absolutely. How'd it make you feel? The elephant man made me feel deeply moved by the exploration of dignity. How did it make you feel? Moved. And emotionally stirred. All right. Uh, That was a long chat about the elephant man, but Mm. uh, that was a five out of five for me. So worth talking about. Uh, So I took us in another direction that was distressing. I picked the 2004 drama Mysterious Skin. It was directed by Greg Iraqi and written by him, um, but based on the novel by Scott Heim. It stars... Brady Corbett as Brian, Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Neil, Michelle Trachenberg as Wendy, and Jeffrey Lycon as Eric. The synopsis for this movie is a teenage hustler and a young man obsessed with alien abductions cross paths together discovering a horrible liberating truth. Um, I 
had it in my mind that you had seen this movie and really liked it and that wasn't true. I was <laughs> mixing it up with the movie Brick that Joseph Gordon-Levitt is also in. Um, I had, I've, I've seen this cover and I've heard this title for years um, and I had a kind of small understanding that it was a tough to watch movie, um, but I didn't really know the extent of it. And then I picked it. <laughs> what did you think of Mysterious Skin? Yeah, um, I knew just slightly less than you. Um, I know the cover quite well because I looked at it and considered it many times while I worked at Blockbuster. This ca- this kind of has come out around the height of JGL's powers when he started to really come into the limelight as really cool indie actor mm-hmm. or at least what I regarded as a really cool indie actor. I didn't have the context that this was upsetting or disturbing. Um, I just kind of based on the synopsis, I initially thought that alien abductions were going to be the focus, especially given the title mysterious skin. I'm like, Oh, aliens coming in. They're taking over bodies. No. Uh, yeah, not at all. Um, so when the story started taking the turns that it was taking. Oh boy. It's heavy. This is one that I think um, it's worth giving a content warning for. So the film depicts child sexual abuse and contains like fairly upsetting, not even fairly, very upsetting depictions of sexual assault, both on children and adults. Um, Yeah. So it's a very upsetting film. Um, I had never seen, we had never seen a Greg Araki film. Uh, he kind of was coming more to my attention because Metro Cinema played the Doom Generation. Mm-hmm. And I think quite a few theaters were playing it at the time around the world. And I was seeing it pop up on Letterboxd a lot. Seems like a filmmaker that I'm just surprised we haven't seen anything by him because he's mm-hmm. very much like an important figure of queer cinema in the 90s and like alternative queer cinema um, where he's, you know, he's not a Gus Van Sant. He's not doing um, mainstream pictures. In mm-hmm. fact, this might be one of his most mainstream and it's like a pretty upsetting movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So to get into the movie proper, what did you think of it? I mean, it was very dark and quite upsetting in a 2000s way, if that yeah. makes sense. Yep. Like there is... Movies that choose to delve into this kind of content in the 2000s, it's just the sh- the 2000s sheen that we've talked about many times lends itself really well to making the stories feel even darker mm-hmm. and just hit me in a way that films that came before and have come after when it's dealing with similar subject matter or a, a darker subject matter just have a... F- the feel is different than what they were doing in the 2000s. The main thing that I kind of came away from this with, even after watching a special feature that kind of talked about this a little bit after we watched the film, is just still having some very uneasy feelings about child actors and how they're used in this film, especially given the subject matter. Yeah, so this film, um, at no point do you actually see children being harmed and i think both of us noticed that that like you know and this is something you know we have conversations 
about as far back as The Shining and I'm sure further back of like the actor who's playing Danny Torrance is unaware that he's making a horror film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could tell as we were watching it like, oh, in these scenes of abuse, it's always cuts between the adult actors and the kids, kid actors. Um, and the few moments with close ups that look like there's a child in them, you can tell like they're only like it's only like the torso with like a sweater on and you're like, oh, an adult could be standing mm-hmm. in for that. And when we watched the special feature, yeah, Greg Araki said like he took great care to ensure that kids were never in those scenes. They were given different scripts, but still the end result. It, and, and that's great. And I'm happy for that. Mm-hmm. I think that's important. But the end result is that they're child actors who are in a film where they are depicted as being graphically sexually abused and they didn't consent to being in that film. They consented to being in a different film. Mm-hmm. And then there's that question of like, well, their parents consented for them to be in that film. But I just think about, and I struggle with, so what happened to them? Maybe they had a great, you know, these two, two particularly two child actors, maybe they had a great time on set. Maybe it was a good experience, but what happens to them later when they go home and people in their community find out what the film's truly about. And then they find out what the film's truly about. And they find out that they were lied to by people that they trusted their parents, the filmmaker, the adult actors who they were in scenes with. What happens later in life when they watch the movie and realize what they truly were in? Mm-hmm. Like, where is the care and the ethics in all of that? Yeah. There, I really there, struggle with that. There, there isn't. I no. feel like any any care or anything like that that comes after f- the fact has to be sought out by those actors should they choose to seek it out. And I just think, yeah, if we're going to... I think there's two questions we have to ask. One is, is there any ethical way to have children involved in films like this considering questions of like informed consent? And two, do we need that? Like, is there a way to make a film like this? Because I do think the film's important. Mm-hmm. I think the the film is deeply uncomfortable. And yet I think it's much more truthful to the journey the complicated, often distressing and divergent ways that different people can respond to trauma that they experienced as children, even similar trauma that they experienced as children in different ways. Um, And it's not some hallmark version of this where there's like a great catharsis and everything's okay because that's not real life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's important, you know, like this shit happens all the time And, you know, I can't speak to it myself, but this may be a profoundly, like, liberating movie for some people, Mm -hmm. right? But is that, is there a way to make that film without kids in it? Yeah. I don't know. I even feel this way when, like, I see, like, an ad on a bus about, like, child trafficking Mm -hmm. or, like, child abuse and there's like a child model on it. And then there's like a little asterisk and it says like these were um, stock photos. Yeah. And I'm like, but how ethical is it to put a stock photo of a child up in like a child trafficking ad? Yeah. And I'm like, I just, it just doesn't make me feel, feel great. So I do think these are conversations that are happening more and more. You and me have both read um, Jeanette McCurdy's book. I'm glad my mom died and Elliot Page's memoir page boy 
they're both memoirs. I don't know why I called one a book and one a memoir. <laughs> and then I've also read Sarah Pauli's um, series of personal essays called Run Towards the Danger. And in all three of them, they talk about like the harm they experienced as child actors in different ways, right? Um, some of those are about uh, just, they're about being put in dangerous situations or like overworked without care for the fact that these are kids. Um, some of it is about direct physical sexual abuse. Um, but more and more, I don't know how I feel about kids being in movies at all. I know. Which is even more complicated when we talk about the last movie we watched this week. Yes. Yes, this is true. Um, what I'm looking for then when a kid is in a film, especially like a prominent role in a film where they had to do a lot of acting is questions about like care and ethics that happened before the film, during the film and are ongoing after the film. So I think about Frankie Corio and after son. And I think about how to me, it seems like both Charlotte Wells and Paul Meskell understand the importance of continuing to care for Frankie post film. Mm hmm. And how like distressing it might be even in the best of circumstances when you're treated well the entirety of the film and you're, the work is appropriate and you're not put in dangerous situations and you're not overworked. Still how distressing it would be to make these profound connections and all of a sudden it's bye onto the next project, never talking to you again. Well, that's just it. Like I, I get, again, I don't fully know, but I get the impression that Frankie Corio is being given an understanding of what the story is overall in After Sun. And I feel like there's a bit of handholding there through Charlotte Wells and through Paul Meskel. Um, whereas that wouldn't have happened with this film because they actively ensured that the kids weren't yeah, the kids aware a, of the subject The matter. kids had a different script and they filmed the scenes with the adults with that different script. And then later the adults filmed scenes without the kids in them that were different. Yeah. It's really, it's yeah. really challenging. And I mean, so then it's just this complex and messy question of like, already the content of this film is really distressing, but we do, I do think we need to have conversations about these like messy and distressing things because they happen. They happen to people we know, they happen to people we care about, they happen to people we don't know, but still should care about. Yeah. So it's really tricky. Yeah. I mean, overall, that was kind of the, the biggest takeaway for me, unfortunately, because I, I feel like there there are some good performances throughout the film. And like JGL is a really great actor. I don't necessarily always agree with his choices and his reasons for yeah, his we choices. Won't ever watch Don John again. <laughs> yeah. But I, I just think I'm, I was just left kind of unsure about it even more after sitting with it because like I didn't love it. I I I likely won't revisit this film. No, I wouldn't watch this movie again. Yeah, I'm I'm just I'm unsure about it. But it has been this film has been praised by um psychologists for being very accurate in its representation of response to trauma as a child. Mm. And I think that's important because I think that this isn't the type of thing we see in films about this subject matter. Mm. I think we often see things that are not very accurate to people's journeys. Yeah. I will say after watching this, I'm interested in seeing some of Iraqi's other films. Mm -hmm. Are you? I am. You don't sound like you are. Yeah. Uh, no, I am. But yeah, this one is uh glad I saw it. Won't watch it again. Complicated feelings. Yeah. And just, yeah. I think 
be worth anyone knowing that there is the focus of this film is child sexual abuse and that that is a like graphic and extended focus of the film. Yeah. How did it make you feel? Uneasy and unsure. How did it make you feel? So it did make me feel profoundly moved. Like I found the journey of the two characters important and moving, but I was distressed by the content mm-hmm. and then the ethics of, of it all. Yeah. Let's talk about something different. Let's go with complicated some things this week. Holy moly. Yeah. Real heady stuff. Let's get a little less heady and a little more. Well, we're going to kick it off with a silly story, but is my mystery movie pick, and I chose to revisit the 2014 horror mystery thriller It Follows. It was written and directed by David Robert Mitchell. It stars Michael Monroe as Jay, Keir Gilchrist as Paul, Olivia uh, Lucardi as Yara, Lily Sepp as Kelly, um, Daniel Savato as Greg, and Jake Weary as Hugh. Synopsis? Short and sweet, a young woman is followed by an unknown supernatural force after a sexual encounter. So, wasn't originally going to watch this, um, but I feel like we've talked about It Follows a lot over the course of the podcast. I feel like it's come up quite a bit. And the original plan was that I had chose to watch the movie Watching the Detectives. It was a movie that I watched when I was a teenager and I remember quite liking it and haven't watched it since then. And I wanted to watch something with a couple Babely Babes. So Killian Murphy and Lucy Liu are in that film. And we got 25 minutes in and we DNF'd it. Did not finish. I can't remember the last time we DNF'd a movie. No, but it wasn't good. No. <laughs> and I can't, I couldn't fully remember the rest of the movie but you looked up the wiki and read the plot summary to me and I'm like, this isn't good. This no. is just like some toxic relationship shit that a teenager would find compelling, but an adult is like, no, that's just a, that's just not a good relationship. That's just, that, that's bad storytelling PD. It is. So yeah, you were the one who was like, do you want to stop watching this? And I was like, yes, please. Yeah, so <laughs> like we, I wasn't going to say that about <laughs> your pick, but I was like, I don't like can this. We, can we stop? Ready to give something a one star, you know? So yeah, we DNF'd it and I wanted to salvage what was left of the night and I wanted to ensure that it'd be something good. So I chose It Follows. <laughs> what do you think of It Follows? I love It Follows. This is one of my favorite movies, period. And it's been on our mind lately because we recently got our rocking fought and It Follows shirts that we ordered. Yeah. Yours is like so gnarly and I love it. I didn't get it because I'm like, I don't need any more shirts. I can't wear to work. <laughs> um, so yours is a still of the first death in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sick. It's so gnarly. <laughs> <laughs> and mine is something I could wear to work. It's uh, the character of Jay. And there's just some like kind of ethereal, ominous hands <laughs> behind her. Yeah. Uh, the first time we saw it follows. This is so interesting because... What I learned in reading about it is that it actually was originally meant to be a straight to like straight to DVD, like straight to streaming thing. Um, It had like the plan was a very brief theatrical run. So think more like they clone Tyrone, like what we talked about last week, where it it did play in some theaters and then it was and then that was going to be it. And it was going to go straight to to DVD and streaming, which I think existed in 2014. Um, But the audience response to it was so 
good and critics liked it so much that they scrapped the VOD and kept it theatrical release only. Mm. So I'm not sure when and how we heard about it, but we were stoked for this movie. So excited. Like we saw it in theaters and we knew about it and we couldn't wait to see it. Yeah. I mean, I'll just say for the record that I think it follows truly rips. Um, It does truly rip. (laughs) uh, From the opening scene. It's one of my favorite opening scenes in any film, but in terms of a horror film, it's up there with the greats, I think. It just scratches so many of my horror movie itches that it's nuts. I can't, I truly can't believe it. But yeah, everything about the marketing and the lead up to this film coming out had me excited. The The trailer had me pumped and the look of the poster and like it, the, the taglines for it were just so classic horror. Like everything was just firing on all cylinders from the get-go with this movie. Well, that's, it's interesting that you call it classic horror because every time we watch it, I think like it's in the playground of classic horror, but it's refusing to be beholden to like the tropes of classic horror. So it has this loving relationship with, you know, films like John Carpenter's Halloween and other classic like slasher and horror films. And yet it's pushing like the representations in new directions. Like it's not stuck with like a final girl. It's not stuck with sex is bad, which is interesting because that's how, yeah, yeah. how it spreads. Um, and I love that. I love that it's, I can show how these films have influenced me and yet still kind of critique some of the ways that they represented women and gender and sex and violence to those bodies on screen and move that in some new directions. Yeah. Like I feel like the word of the day for me when it comes to it follows is ambiguity. Absolutely. Like, and that stems from everything to what it's trying to say with its themes um, and its setting and what it's referencing and where it fits in the pantheon of horror films and I love that. I love that it can be, you can really take it on as a surface level story, but it's really fun to find the references, find, try to figure out when it's set, where it's set, how everything links together, what, it means. what it means. And that's why we revisit it so often, I think. Well, going back to the first time we ever saw it, so we saw it in the theater and this was, I don't get scared a lot anymore we've talked about this before but Mm -hmm. this scared me in the theater like not scared scared but I was on edge the whole time and that's you know credit to the way that it's filmed with these wide shots and you know that at any moment it can make it onto the screen right and so your eyes are scanning the edges of these wide shots and being like ah is that is that it or is that not it Um, and I'm still doing that on I even though I know what happens in every scene, I'm still looking for if there's any Easter eggs or like anything to notice that you haven't said I haven't yeah. yet. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I, I found that 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 made it scary intense, and anxiety inducing. And I found the character of Jay so compelling. And in that kind of conversation I'm having about not being beholden to these seventies and eighties classic tropes, you know, Jay has a group of people who support her and believe her and help her. And it's not just like teenagers getting picked off one by one. Yeah. 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 
like it's it's almost like the structure of the friend group is more inspired by like 1980s adventure films like the last film of the week we watched or mm-hmm. you know like a more like an it yeah but even within that jay is the only one at risk of violence in the film or at risk of death and these people surround her believe her support her mm-hmm. um and i love i love that about it yeah i think that what makes this film so compelling especially on rewatch after many rewatches and knowing what happens in the film is the atmospheric feeling of dread and fear that this movie instills right from the opening and right after understanding what it may be and what it does. And it's, and, and that fear and dread is, is conveyed so well through the performances and the framing that it, that's what just draws you in and draws you back and keeps you compelled through the whole thing. And it just makes it a fun experience, both for the first time and on subsequent rewatches. Just the atmosphere established in this film is is so it's so good, it's so juicy. And that is, you know, that's something that we didn't um, consciously notice, but have since noticed and since read about that. There's this creation of like discomfort and and like you said already ambiguity through the fact that the time of year is unclear like the season is unclear because the characters keep wearing different like some some are wearing like summer clothes and then they look like they're wearing winter clothes and no one ever like it it just doesn't jive you can't tell what like decade it is like is this the 70s or the 80s is it now there's like technology but it's not technology we have difficulty in placing if the opening scene is before or after mm-hmm. the events of the movie the ambiguity of the ending of the film. Mm-hmm. Like there's so much there that like adds to this like tension and unease in like subtle ways. Mm-hmm. And then I think we'd be remiss for us not to talk about uh, the score by disaster piece. Yeah. I mean, first of all, one of the best names for any artist out there. So clever, so good, but it just, it harkens back to that very eighties, John Carpentry sort of soundtrack and infuses a, more modern freshness to it and just a sense of dread. I think that you could even look to what the composers on Stranger Things are doing. But this is pre-Stranger Things. Which I think is important because I think that for sure, while the composers on Stranger Things are pulling from 80s horror music, there's no doubt pulling from what Disasterpiece did here. And Disasterpiece has gone on to do some great scores. They most recently, or he most recently did Marcel Lachelle with Shoes On and uh, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. So Working with A24. This feels like it should have been an A24 film. Yeah, if it had been around producing films back then, which like I feel it's not far off from when A24 was really kicking into gear. But yeah, it just it just missed. It's like beginners. Like beginners totally would have been a twenty four. Oh yeah, movie. especially with that Mike Mills works with. Yeah. With them now, uh, there's some interesting things that David Robert Mitchell has said about the film. So I don't know if you know this, but the concept for the film came from a recurring nightmare he had about somebody just slowly walking behind him, following him. Yeah, hate that. And then he said he kept, like he'd been having that for much of his life, like this recurring nightmare. And then as he got older, he kind of mm. put these elements of sex into it. Um, 
But when he gets asked about, like, what does the film represent, this is what he says. So he says, quote, I'm not personally that interested in where it comes from. To me, it's dream logic in the sense that they're in a nightmare. And when you're in a nightmare, there's no solving the nightmare, even if you try to solve it. That's a very David Lynch answer. Which, but it feels which I true. Quite like. like this this film does feel like it's playing with like nightmare logic. Mm-hmm. Um, he's referred to the group as like a Scooby gang that's like trying their best to do things. But the things that like I've heard critiques of like the their attempts to solve the problem is like stupid. And I'm like and David Robert, Robert Mitchell would say, yes, it is because they don't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. Like they're they're trying absurd things because the situation is absurd. The other thing he has said, and I and I really find this compelling, um, because a lot of people will read this film as like a straight, like it's about STDs, and I don't, I think it's way more complicated than that. I think if you read it like that, it doesn't quite track. Yeah. Um, and so he said about it, uh, quote, Jay opens herself up to danger through sex, the one way in which she can free herself from that danger. We're all here for a limited amount of time and we can't escape our mortality, but love and sex are two ways in which we can at least temporarily push death away. Mm-hmm. So sex as being both the thing that puts her in danger, but also the thing that can free her from danger. Yeah. I think makes it more complicated and elides it from being totally just a like sex is bad mm-hmm. movie. Yeah. I just find it, I find it really compelling. I find the way that people, ways that people can keep seeing it in new ways and keep understanding what it might represent and the multiplicity of what it might represent to be really Oh yeah, it's an allegorical smorgasbord because I feel like there's so much you could dig into it and so many lenses you could look at the film and and what the different things mean. Um, Or you can just again take it very surface level horror movie. Like it's it's great. Um, Yeah, and it I don't know it just it it fires on all cylinders for me. It's so good. And it has some truly iconic images and moments. Some of the best in recent horror, I think. I mean, I have one of them on a t-shirt now, which is really sick. Yeah, if if you're a horror fan and haven't seen It Follows yet, or you're even a little bit curious, highly recommend seeking it out because it is such a great watch and it's so intriguing and engaging. I love it. The other, um, the last thing I'll say is that this film is endorsed by um, Lucy of Letterboxd's niece. Oh, yeah. What did it start as? My six-year-old niece? She updates it with the ages. My eight-year-old niece? I think it's nine-year-old now. So okay. like as she ages, she changes what it is. <laughs> six-year-old niece, yeah. I feel like originally it was six year, six-year-old niece, and she, at six years old, loved this movie. <laughs> yeah. I think this is like the most logged movie that the two of them have watched together. And I just want to read the, my favorite review from oh, yeah. Lucy's now nine-year-old niece, but I believe she wrote this when she was six or seven. Yep. <laughs> so it's, quote, I like the movie. My favorite character is Jay. I like the part where Jay puts grass on the knee on her knee. It's my best favorite horror movie. <laughs> it's so good. It's, I, like, <laughs> I love that a, a six-year-old is watching this and loving it. It makes the three-year-old Elliot who was watching Jaws and like Terminator 2 feel real good. We had a friend recently say to you, like, what was the line with your mom in movies? Because <laughs> you were talking about how your mom wouldn't take you to see Jurassic Park in the theater. But this friend also knew that like you were watching Jaws when you were like a toddler. And yeah. I thought that was the funniest thing. <laughs> well, I, it might've been in a, the same conversation or with somebody else that like, 
it seems like the common thing was that somebody would send a, a parent or the parents would go see Jurassic Park in the theater to see if it was too scary for their kids. And some parents were real cool and were like, yeah, we'll take the kids. And then in some cases, it's it's not got over very well. But uh, my parents made the decision it was it was going to be too much. And I can see that Jurassic Park can, I imagine, for when it came out, first movie of its kind being really intense. But I don't know. Something I'll have never done that I'm sad about. You have seen Jurassic Park in the theater a lot now. Yeah, I love Jurassic Park. <laughs> I also love It Follows. Highly recommend it. How to make you feel. It Follows makes me feel a gleeful sense of mortality and dread. You? Uh, grateful for potent modern horror like this. So for some less potent modern horror. But... Horror nonetheless. Oh, horror nonetheless. I've been on a real, like, I just want to watch horror movies Same. kick. Um, we're not a horror movie podcast, but we do watch a lot of horror. It was funny when your mom, when we first started the podcast, your mom was like, I didn't realize you guys liked horror so much. And we're like, yep, always have, always will. Yeah. But I wanted to watch something. You had said you were in the mood for something fun. And I'd kind of had this as one I wanted to rewatch something that we've seen once and we hadn't hadn't watched again and we had liked it at the time. So I picked the 2011 horror thriller, You're Next. It was direct, directed, it was directed, <laughs> it was directed by Adam Wingard and written by Simon Barrett, Barrett, probably Barrett, starring Sharni Vinson as Aaron, Joe Swanberg as Drake, AJ Bowen as Crispin, sorry if that's your name, listener, uh, Nicholas Tucci as Felix, Wendy Glenn as Z, and Ty West as Tariq. The synopsis, when the Davidson family comes under attack during their wedding anniversary getaway, the gang of mysterious killers soon learns that one of the victims harbors a secret talent for fighting back. What do you think of your next? You heard that right. Ty West, writer-director of X and Pearl, amongst other things. When he showed up, I was like, what are you doing here? Well, this is just in general a smorgasbord of mumblecore filmmakers. So Joe Swanberg is. He made Hannah Takes the Stairs with Greta Gerwig. Oh. And he made Drinking Buddies. Oh, yeah. Like, he's, like, part of that, like, mumblecore Duplass brothers scene. Um, and I believe there's a woman in the mix here who's who's done some stuff, too. But I looked at her films and I hadn't heard of any of them. Right. So it feels um, like it's kind of like just a, a little, little group project. Yeah. It's kind of cute. It is kind of cute. And, um, they, and a bunch of them have been involved in those VHS movies. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I love that we're living our little horror fan life this week. I feel in addition to scary season being October, Halloween season, I love watching horror movies in the summer. Yeah. There's just some, especially a movie like It Follows, even though we talked about how ambiguous it is in its time setting, it feels like a summer movie to me. And I love that. Texas Chainsaw is a total summer movie. Totally. And I, I, when I was a kid, I used to go, I've, I think I've probably told this story before on the pod, but when I was a kid during the summer when I was off, I would just ride my bike to the video store, get seven horror movies for seven nights for $7, a, a case of Dr. Pepper and like some junk food and just watch horror movies over the whole summer and I just do that every week. the exact same thing, but I always stopped at Red Rooster for a Slurpee. Hell yeah. Um, they, yeah, they had some killer Coke slur- Slurpees. They really did. They were the best. Only Slurpees I ever liked. Yeah. R.I.P. Red Rooster. <laughs> Indeed. Um, but yeah, it's just horror movies and watching horror movie after horror movie after horror movie. 
which we did with our buddy Lori, which we'll have. Oh, that was so fun. We'll have an yeah. episode about that coming up. But summer is just so synonymous with doing that. So this is the perfect kind of summer horror movie. Like, yes. So the first time we saw you are next, we thought I, I remember that I loved it. And I think you did, too. And we were just like, oh, yeah, fun. it's just fun. Um, I don't think it's as raucously amazing a second time around and 12 years later. Yeah. Um, but it's still pretty fun. It's fun. It's easy. I think it subverts some of the tropes of horror films in a, in a way that is often subverted. So it's kind of following a new trend, but it's a trend that I'm happy with, which is, you know, like, women not being frail naked the final girl got there by her own volition right Ra- yeah rather than just like oh she's the virgin yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> or she's the protagonist like so I- i'm into that i also i feel like we've had a lot of films especially in the last year or so um about like rich people get what they deserve mm-hmm. you know like triangle of sadness and the menu but this is playing in the same sandbox as uh, Ready or Not, which came later. Um, which I like to revisit because I remember, again, another yeah. one I quite liked. Like I feel like we'll feel in a similar way about it, but I think that one yeah. might be a little bit more. Um, no, I, I feel like it's going to be similar. I will say this movie has some like good kills. Yeah. This, there's some, some over the top, some under the top <laughs> that are... I don't know. They're executed really well. You wouldn't expect any less from a bunch of horror creators that just yeah. wanted to get together and make a thing. I feel like they spent their whole budget on one song that they repeated again and again and <laughs> and the kills. And I'm I'm into that. I think it's just a fun, easy horror film that isn't about decimated female bodies. And I, I think that's good. I wanted to say something that... Whenever I think about this movie or whenever I see the cover of this movie, so the the people that are infiltrating this house and start killing people, they're all wearing animal masks. And something that you said, I think it was back when we first watched this, is that I, I don't like the title, You're Next. I wish it was called The Animals. And that's always... Did I say that? You did. And okay. I, that always stuck with me because I'm like, The Animals is such a scary horror movie title. And I don't think it's the right title for this movie. Yeah. But a movie like The Strangers, tonally, where everyone, all of the killers are wearing creepy animal masks. That sounds so scary. And I want to see... Trademark. I want to see Bad that dead, movie. Bad Dead, Dead. Yeah. The Animals. Coming soon. <laughs> coming soon. Wow. Yeah, I'm brilliant. I do think your next is a weird title for it, considering like what the film is ultimately about. And this film does have the um, like it follows. And I think we talked about this last week, too. We watched a horror movie last week. I don't know. Uh, talk to me. Yeah. with hmm. In Talk to Me, where there's like a cold open of like the entity getting somebody else first. <laughs> uh, that happens here, too, right? Where you have like people who aren't involved in the actual plot who are killed by the people first so that you can see what's coming and ah, i'm into it i like it give yeah. me a horror movie structure i'm familiar with i like to see, i will never say no to it i like to see whatever our entity or our killer or whatever i like those op- those cold opens because it gives you it shows you what the stakes are and what those things are capable of um yeah. and 
my it follows shirt is a great example of that <laughs> um yeah I, i'd say like this it, this has some like great gruesome home alone vibe tr- tricks and traps it's a little bit gorier than most of your like fun horror movies yeah um aaron our lead is is like a fun albeit shallow character to follow I don't know. As the kids would say, this is like mid. Yeah. I think it's one that like the first time you see it, it doesn't feel mid. And then as you think more about it or revisit it, you're like, okay, yeah, it's like it's it's fun and it's easy. Yeah. And I think that's about all we need to say about it. So how did your next make you feel? Just senseless fun. I make you feel almost identical. It made me feel a forgettable horror fun. Yeah. Not forgettable. Oh. Not senseless. I'm so excited to finally cover this on this show because we, there's this batch of movies that we really, really like that we watched just a few months before starting up the podcast that are just on the list of, I wish that we had talked about that. And I'm excited to finally revisit those because I think we watched this in January. We started the, pod- the podcast in March of, 20, of 2022. So I'm excited to talk about this because it came to Metro Cinema and it was 2020's Shiva Baby, a comedy drama written and directed by Emma Seligman, who is the writer-director on one of the films I'm most anticipated for. We're both anticipated. Both excited for? <laughs> That's coming out <laughs> We're both anticipated for. We're, we're anticipating and we're excited for the film Bottoms, which looks amazing. It's uh, but Shiva Baby, <laughs> Shiva Baby stars Rachel Sennett as Danielle, Danny de Defer- Danny de Ferrari as Max, Fred Melamed as Joel, Polly Draper as Debbie, Molly Gordon as Maya. That's all I'll say. The synopsis: A college student attends a family shiva where she is accosted by her relatives, outshined by her ex girlfriend, and f- and face to face with her sugar daddy and his family. Yeah, okay, let's just get into it. What do you think of Shiva Baby? Yeah, like you said, uh, the first time we saw this, it blew me away. I really loved it. And I've been wanting to rewatch it. And it was so exciting for this to come to Metro. I don't know why it did. It's There's no anniversary. There's like nothing. It's not part of a program, like curated thing. They're just playing it twice. This hits even harder in the theater because mm. it is so anxiety inducing. And it's so claustrophobic. Like they, there's this tight framing. It's almost like a closed circuit film. It's yeah. not, but it kind of evokes that. We talked about this a lot when we first watched it, but it's a not a horror movie horror movie. Yeah. 100%. Like it's playing, I keep saying this, playing in the sandbox. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like it's in that same vein of horror and it's making you have those icky feelings. It's just the horror of life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so good. Yeah, because it has that feeling, but it is also simultaneously hilarious. Um, oh, it's so funny. It's also nauseating, like the stuff with food. Yeah, it's really, nauseating. Really gross. Oh, um, Rachel Sennett is one of my favorite comedic actors right now. I think she's so great. I'm really sad that she is connected to that show, The Idol, which we'll never watch. And all the conditions around that show seem pee pee poo poo. It's also sad to see like Dan Levy in that show, but I feel like I'm going to say that neither of them really knew what they signed up for. And then it just went to hell in a handbasket and they were still, they just signed contracts and had to be a part or of it. Or they needed money. Hey, you know, people got to eat. 
but I, I love Rachel Sennett. She, <laughs> you said to me after the movie that she is responsible for just saying some of the lines that just so pertain to, to your life well, in some of her films. So first of all, this movie, um, the character of Danielle is bisexual and I feel like we just don't get a lot of bisexual representation in TV and film, especially with characters that are like actively bisexual. Mm-hmm. And so yay, thumbs up me represented. Love that. I don't have a sugar daddy, but <laughs> hey, I wouldn't say no to it. <laughs> <laughs> Muddy's tight. <laughs> um, but also the character of Danielle is a gender studies major mm-hmm. and there is a sequence in this film where she's trying to explain what gender studies is to a group of like her parents, friends and her sugar daddy um, at this Shiva. And I have not lived the experience of doing it at a Shiva, but I have definitely lived the experience of trying to explain what gender studies is. Yeah. So big, big relation there. And then in bodies, 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 her like, it's hard to make a podcast. <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work. So I just, I love it. Um, She's so good. I'm a big fan of, so our friend Cassandra, who was on the show earlier this year. Yes. She does a lot of really thoughtful and amazing thinking about books. She's a prolific reader. And um, we'll share this after, after we post this episode. And I think we've shared it before, but she talks about this uh, term that she coined called disaster girl fiction. And I think that Shiva Baby is like disaster girl cinema within the context of that. So it's kind of like these characters, they don't have to be women. It's just that energy, right? Who are just a fucking mess. Mm-hmm. And yet you can't help like wanting to watch them. It's in that kind of icky realm you know Mm -hmm. like i feel like this isn't so far off from some like yorgos lanthimos stuff just in terms of like the way it makes you feel yeah or like aronofsky oh fuck aronofsky but yeah i know what you mean yeah (laughs) (laughs) i don't like him as a person but I, i i get the connection um yeah it is both just like so upsetting so hilarious so smart so complex like there's a moment in the movie where Maya calls Danielle a misogynist. Yeah. And I'm like, legitimately, like, she's, you want to support her and what she's doing, but you're also like, you're kind of being a jerk to other women. Like, mm-hmm. what's your problem? And I feel like the film is very self-aware of that. Um, the writer-director, Emma Seligman, this is uh, based on a short film that she did for film school that she then expanded out. And Rachel Sennett was in the original short film, too, and a couple things that she said about it, which I really love. So one thing, so uh, Emma Seligman is bisexual and she wanted to like expand that story out. So she said, quote, if no one watched this movie except for some young bisexual women who feel seen, then I feel like I've done my job. Yeah. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, she also said she wanted to show through Danielle, quote, a pressure to be perfect manifests itself in women long before marriage and kids come into focus and that she wanted to explore how the power of sex is limited. Mm. Um So I feel like she's very aware of the like messy nuance that she's looking at. And like, it's not this like perfect feminist text because this shit's messy. Yeah. I mean, for people who were like Barbie wasn't enough, watch, watch Barbie and Shiva baby back to back and you'll (laughs) be like two sides of the coin. Right. Yeah. 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 
yeah, there's just there's so much that works for me here. Like the 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 building winding claustrophobic discomfort and dread is just so it's just that of a thriller or a horror movie. And when you put that in the context of a family or big social function, which are already a nightmare for me in real life, it just taps into such a core personal feeling. And I mean, like, I'm not a woman, but the things that are projected onto Danielle in this film, you just see it so often projected onto <laughs> onto women and their lives, especially through family. And it's it's heartbreaking and it's it's hard to watch. And you can just slowly see the you can see Danielle getting wound up and starting to reach her breaking point, but still having to hold it together because it's a shiva and you can't make a scene and you have you have to be you have to act a certain way. And she just wants to leave, but her dad is a fucking putz. And yeah, it's just so well crafted and well executed. I'm really excited for Bottoms. I'm really excited for whatever Emma Seligman does next. I love that her work is clearly where the casting people for the bear go when they need to pull people in. (laughs) Yeah. Is is it Claire? Is that her name in? Yeah. Claire bear. Claire bear. In season Um, two. In season two. And then Sydney from both seasons, who is absolutely phenomenal, um, is going to be in bottoms. So love that connection. Um, Yeah. This movie to use some language from earlier rips. (laughs) It is so good. Um, I like what Emma Seligman is doing. I like what she stands for. Like um, everyone involved in all of the crew on this film were women. Um, So the only crew that weren't women were producers because like, yeah, I get that money from men (laughs) and then give women jobs. Um, She seems to think very thoughtfully about her movies. And I love that too. She's talked about how inspiration for this movie came from Gia Coppola's Palo Alto, where she said it has, quote, a suffocating and debilitating nature of young female insecurities. And she wanted to play on that. I definitely think that's in here. Mm-hmm. Um, Trey Edward Schultz, uh, Krisha, which we haven't seen, but um, that she was inspired how it uses location as storytelling. Location is definitely oh, yeah. super important to this movie. And that she also was inspired by the Coen Brothers films, uh, by the TV show Transparent, uh, by the films of John Cassavetes and uh, by Mike Nichols work. So I can see so much of that. Yeah. I was like, all of it. I mean, yeah, think about a woman under the influence. And yeah, these definitely feel like they are connected by a line. Um, Especially that in the in the latter half of Women Under the Influence where, ha- where her husband has like gathered everybody for like a homecoming or whatever. Oh, yeah, that just totally tracks with the vibe here. And just like craft wise, like the single location closed loop feeling that you talked about. There's long takes in here, which I love. Uh, like following Danielle through the house and just seeing how packed it is and her having to squeeze past people and try to avoid conversations she doesn't want to have with people. And the way it plays with sound and volume of like, like a shrieking baby on a loop that is intercut with like the constant overbearing noise of like all of these people talking. And then when it'll finally cut to like a silent scene, Mm -hmm. it's this movie's amazing. If you haven't seen it, highly, highly recommend the title's great. The poster's great. The movie's great. The runtime is great. The runtime is perfect. It's under 90 minutes. I love it. I love it too. And it's awesome that Metro brought it 
<laughs> to its lineup for there's a couple a, of showings. Yeah, there's a little, there's a group of like going out with the boys to shiv a baby. Yeah. Love that. Take the boys to shiv a baby. Hell yeah. So good. How'd it make you feel? It makes me feel hilariously anxious and nauseated. How does it make you feel? In awe of the unexpected yet seamless combo of comedy and dread. All right. We're here. Last film of the week. It was my mystery movie pick and I wanted to watch something fun. So I wanted to revisit the 1985 adventure comedy family film, The Gunnis. Uh, sorry, The Goonies. It was directed by Richard Donner and written by Chris Columbus and Steven Spielberg. And it stars Sean Astin as Mikey, Josh Brolin as Brand, Jeff Cohen as Chunk, Corey Feldman as Mouth, Carrie, Carrie Green as Andy, Martha Plimpton as Steph, Kihui Kwan as Data, uh, John Matusak as Sloth, and as the Fratellis, we have Robert Davey as Jake, Joe Pantoliano as Francis, and Anne Ramsey as Mama Fratelli. Do you think that's why the band The Fratellis is called The Fratellis? Oh, shit. That's a good point. We should look it up. Yeah. I used to listen to them a lot. Yeah. That Henrietta song. Dear Henrietta. <laughs> yeah. We should look it up. In the meantime, synopsis for The Goonies. A group of young misfits called The Goonies discover an ancient map and set out on an adventure to find a legendary pirate's long lost treasure. So earlier in the day, we went to Metro because they were showing a quote unquote film. Did you find out the Fratellis? Yeah, the, the band's name. This is from the Wikipedia page. The band's name came from the criminal family in the Goonies. Perfect. That's amazing. Who wow, knew? That's great. Fun fact. Uh, as I was saying, we went to Metro because they were showing what you could call a film, but it was a cat. It was called Cat Fest 2023. So essentially, it was just a compilation that was assembled of the best cat videos of 2023. I mean, the best. Yeah, and it was over an hour long, which we both felt. But what we did, what we took the opportunity to do, was take our little nibbling, our 11 year old nibbling who loves animals, to go see it. So we took her for lunch, and then we took her to the movie, <laughs> Cat Fest. Um, one of the biggest surprises was how busy it was. It was lined up around the corner, and it was really funny because there was this huge lineup, and there was these young guys that drove by in a car that were yelling at the line. They're like, what's going on? What's happening here? And a bunch of kids just said, it's Cat Fest. <laughs> they actually yelled, cat videos. <laughs> That's amazing. They're like, what? Cat videos. So funny. But I was kind of in that fun, childish kind of mood in choosing the Goonies. Also had a bit of a, I don't know, gross experience, frustrating experience with the people sitting behind us who at one point just before the movie started, it sounded like they dropped something and there was a lot of scrambling to clean it up, but we never really, we didn't really pay it much thought. It was like, oh, they spilled some popcorn. popcorn. Yeah, sure. Um, and then a little bit of time passed and all of a sudden your, your shoes start slipping and sliding around. And then, <laughs> yeah, and like I thought I was in like a cartoon. Like, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> it was really bad. It's like, why are my feet sliding out from under me? Um, and I've got restless leg syndrome, so my feet are often dancing. Uh, it turns out they dumped a whole ass milkshake that was 
uh, starting to flow down uh, towards the front of the theater and under your seat. So we shifted over. It was weird that they didn't tell us that they didn't say anything or apologize or anything like that. Or be like, hey, you guys might want to move because we spilled a milkshake and it's going to be under your feet and like all over your bags in like two seconds. Yeah. So we moved and then the slippy turned into sticky very quickly. I got a little bit of it. You got the worst of it for sure. A whole right foot. And if you've listened to the podcast before, you know I worked in a movie theater and had to clean up wet messes that were left overnight and were no longer wet messes that were easy to clean up and mop up, etc. So we headed out and made sure that we informed the staff in the instance that maybe those people weren't going to say anything. And I got the vibe that they weren't going to say anything about it. So um, I totally wrecked the day of one of the employees at Metro Cinema by saying, hey, somebody spilled a milkshake. It's just in the front here. Um, but I wanted to let you know because you'll probably need a mop. And it's just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> just all the air left the room for that person. But anyway, um, not a rad wreck, but a recommendation is that if you see somebody make a big old mess um, and they aren't going to speak up about it, just do the nice thing and just yeah. let the theater people know because they'll appreciate it. Even though it sucks that they have to clean it, they'll appreciate not having to clean it when it's harder to clean. Okay. What did any of that have to do with the Goonies? Um, I just wanted to express that I was in a fun little kid-esque mood. Because of going to the cat Because video of going fest. to the cat fest. Gotcha. Which led into a whole ass story about messes and milkshakes and stuff as well. But let's get to the Goonies. What do you think of the Goonies? So the Goonies is a weird one because I know for some people this is like their their childhood movie. And it isn't mine, but I've definitely seen it and probably a few times. And then there's that thing of like, you know those movies where like even if you've never seen them, you know lines from them or you know scenes from them because they've just proliferated in pop culture. And I feel like, hey, you guys done in the sloth voice which is like ableist to do that so i'm not gonna do that um and the truffle shuffle which is like fat phobic but like those are the lines that those are the parts of the movie that i and then like goonies never say die like i feel like there's just these iconic moments some troubling um that you know about the only thing i really remembered outside of those moments is that i had a big old crush on josh brolin on brand with his you know, Ken's doing it in the Barbie movie. Brand's doing it in the Goonies with his little uh, bandana. And little Kylie liked that. And uh, old Kylie likes not not little boy in the Goonies because that's creepy, but definitely Ken. Yeah. I, I mean, who didn't have a crush on Josh Brolin as Brand? Honestly, I think one of the people I dated in high school kind of looked like a more Dutch version of Brand. <laughs> <laughs> I see it. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I see it. We'll keep it at that. Yeah. <laughs> so had you not watched this since you were a kid? I don't think so. You? Yeah. I don't think so. I, I, I feel like I didn't, like maybe I revisited it in high school. Maybe. But I, I don't know. It's been a while. And this wasn't a regular for me. I wouldn't return to it. No gremlins over, over and over again. No, and it's not like a Home Alone or anything like that either. But it's awesome, and like I'd watch it whenever it was on TV, which was quite often. I felt like. like oh, so you've seen the cut with the octopus? 
Oh, I don't know. Was that the TV version? Yeah, apparently there's two additional scenes that got cut from the theatrical version that for some reason are often put into the TV version. Interesting. And one involves an octopus, which is relevant because the last line of the movie is Data saying something about an octopus that like makes no sense in the context of the movie. Yeah, I was like, oh, they're just exaggerating what they saw. <laughs> nope, there's actually a scene <laughs> with an octopus. Um, I was glad you picked this because it's actually been on my radar to pick to just be like how does this hold up what do i think of it now and i have to say i had a really good time yeah i really liked it like i'm not gonna five out of five it or anything but i really liked it yeah i mean it just has it has that steven spielberg chris columbus magical charm that is so good and is just so often replicated in anything that has to do with kids riding bikes and going on adventures and cussing <laughs> and i there yeah they say shit a lot um i feel like there is something especially lovely about watching this now and like knowing that like sean astin and kihi kwan and i mean even jeff cohen just like in his relationship with kihi kwan like grew up to be such sweeties mm-hmm. and like to be in this other media where like you know Sa- is his name sam wise yeah what's his full name that's that's it. Does he have a last name? Uh, I want to say Ganji, but that doesn't feel right. No, that that does. I think that's right. Samwise Gamgee. Oh, you added an M. I said Ganji. Samwise something. Um, and then what's his character's name in Stranger Things? Bill, Bud, Bud, mm. Bug, Paul. Nope. <laughs> something. Super Bob. Bob. That was close. Um. So sweet. And then obviously Waymond is like the ultimate sweet character in any film ever. So like watching it and just being like, oh, little geek one. Oh, little Sean Astin with braces. <laughs> They're both so good. Sean Astin is adorable in this. Kiki Kwan is adorable. He, and he's he's so good. And on this on this watch, I'm just so sad that he's not in more films like uh, when I was putting my notes together for this, I rewatched his Oscar speech from this past year. Of course you did. And it's so good. I rewatched the laundry and taxes scene because it's so good. And just this week, we watched the trailer for season two of Loki. And I totally forgot that he was going to be in it, but he popped up. I'm like, God damn it, Keith Kwan. Yeah, and yes. I like, literally don't give a shit about Marvel anymore. And him being in Loki kind of makes me want to watch it. But he also was in that American Born Chinese and we didn't watch that. So Yeah, that's you know. true. But... They're both great. Josh Brolin, Thanos himself, super babely in this. Um, and like Martha Plimpton. I love I, I loved her introduction in this because yeah, she's got just like cool vibes. But like she's got non-binary vibes, to be honest, in this. Truly. But her introduction was like her fishing out a crab from <laughs> like a, a pool of water, and she like whips up really fast it's such a weird introduction and i don't think we got an introduction to andy outside of when they're in the car other than like brand talking about going on a date with her yeah that's right that's kind of how we first learned about her i have to say though like chunk won the day for me like he was my favorite character there's this i think i'm getting the story right in my brain not that it's going to matter to anybody else but there's a musician that i follow her um like newsletter And one time, like years ago, not that many years ago, but years ago, pre-pandemic for sure, she was supposed, she did a newsletter and in it she had a gif of the truffle shuffle. Mm -hmm. 
And people were really upset at her Mm. because she used it as kind of a like humorous thing. And people said like that was used against me in the schoolyard. I was made fun of. People yelled at me to do it. Like it's a painful thing to have you just like use it without thinking. Um, And it kind of became this big thing that this musician doesn't respond well to criticism often. It's getting better. But um, and then kind of this dialogue happened over it. And I've kind of never forgotten that because that's not an experience that happened to me. And I don't think the Goonies was really the movie when I was on the playground, but I could totally see that happening. Right. And I could see people using the character of sloth to like make fun of somebody too. And there's this part of me that it's like, it's hard to separate the way that the film much in the same way of like the character of Chrissy in now and then, or um, what's the kid in stand by me. Oh, um, who grew up to be like a heartthrob. Yeah. Jerry O'Connell. Yeah. His character. We're like, the characters are meant to be a punching bag for fat jokes. They just are. Yeah. Right. The characters are like eating and the other kids make fun of it. Um, where I'm like, I would also want some food when I've been on an adventure for hours. Like that's just realistic. Yeah. People get hungry. And so like, there's this part of me that it's like, I know that that was the intention is to like make fun of the character, not just from the like, Oh, a group of friends hanging out with each other because yes, they all make fun of each other, but adults wrote these jokes mm-hmm. to make fun of a kid. Yeah. And that's problematic. So I'm acknowledging that I'm acknowledging that like, that's not cool. The proliferation of like that, in a friend group, also not cool. I did like that they didn't have jokes about data being like a English as a second language speaker. Like I'm honestly surprised and impressed that that wasn't a thing. But then when I look at the character, like divorced from that and just look at like how I connected with the character, honestly, chunk is me. Chunks. I love (laughs) chunk is so great. Like he actually gets some of the best lines of the movie. Like, he's the hero of the movie. Like he's oh, yeah. the most empathetic. He's the most just like to a fault honest. Like he's just, oh shit. Like, <laughs> oh shit, what? <laughs> oh no. Like he's just like I love that. I love that he is immediately what he's thinking is out of his mouth and it's never mean. Well and, it's just honest. Well, and like people listen to Chunk. Like the fact that like the Fratellis they like tell us everything and he tells them about his life <laughs> and even though he's like meant to be like we're meant to understand that he embellishes things it seems like everybody likes him they're like okay chunk like come on but they like him and they know him and they're you know and there's so many scenes like when the kids are freaked out where it's chunk first like grabbing onto data and they're just like hugging each other and it is so cute and there's like there's a lot of male touch that is not no homo which is really nice like it's just like they're scared, so they're hugging each other. Well, I think something I that I kind of took away on this viewing of it is I just really love that the Goonies, you're a Goonie if you're somebody that, you know, on the negative side is a little bit different, a bit of an outcast, maybe had a hard time acclimating at school or in your community and and making friends. But I would I would say the positive side, the side that the Goonies would say is like, these are some of the most special people that live near me and that I want to spend my time with. The the two girls, like um Andy and Steph, they're 
they're not Goonies, and Andy actively says that she's not a Goonie at one point in the movie. But by the end, everybody's a Goonie. And I think that that's just so beautiful. And yeah, it's those moments of where they touch or they grab each other out of fear, um, that they know everybody's strengths, that they turn to they turn to each other when they're looking for leadership, when they're looking for help, when when they need Chunk to break something or they need Chunk to get, go to the police, um, when they need data to like figure out some some sort of gadget techie thing for them. And I think that that's really beautiful that you can become a goonie if you feel out of place or if you don't know what your what your spot is in in the community or in wherever you're living. I love that. You said that beautifully. Thanks. The Goonies is pretty inclusive. They need to work on making fun of each other, but they're pretty inclusive. So there was a Goonies oath that was written for the script, but didn't make it into the film. Do you want me to tell it to you and then we can become Goonies? Yeah. Okay. So the oath is, I will never betray my Goondock friends. We will stick together until the whole world ends. Through heaven and hell and nuclear war, good pals like us will stick like tar. In the city or the country or the forest or the boonies, I am proudly declared a fellow goonie. <laughs> That's really cute. Through nuclear war, babe. <laughs> all comes back goonies. to Oppenheimer. <laughs> it always all comes back to Oppenheimer. Um, another dynamic that I really liked and I thought was really sweet was actually between Brand and Mikey. Yeah, I, like like he seemed to, in so many movies, the older brother like doesn't want his, or the older sibling doesn't want their like pesky kid sibling around yeah, like get out of here dorkazoid like buzz right yeah um but in this one he seems like yes his brother gets on his nerves but he also really seems to love him and care for him well there, there's a moment out on like the veranda <laughs> yeah. um which is both so funny and so sweet <laughs> yeah it's it's so so good it, and it's it's really beautiful and like brand is older than most of the other goonies but yet they all feel like equal playing fields everybody in that group like nobody is better nobody's in charge or because of how old they are or how tall they are or anything like that it's it's like what you said they're all misfits with their own strengths and you know mikey's is like the ability to believe and data's is like Mm -hmm. creating inventions and mouths is confidence and you know like they and and i feel like andy and steph too as they become goonies there's no like oh girls yuck like Mm -hmm. that's never a part of it and even sloth, right? Like, there's some weird, interesting to do this in the same film as the, or same week that we watched The Elephant Man. Like, there's a strangeness to the fact that that character exists at all. But ultimately, I feel like the messaging of that character is like, don't be mean to people or scared of people because they look different than you. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the ultimate messaging that happens between, because of the relationship between Chunk and Sloth is actually really beautiful. Yeah. Like really, really lovely. And there's some really just beautiful moments in this film. Like at the near the end of the movie, um, Data speaks Mandarin with his parents. I like the, watch you should watch the Goonies just for the moment between Data and his parents. It's at so the end of the beautiful. Movie. And it's subtitled in English. And I just think like that feels radical for not just 1985 but honestly now like in what family films is there a bilingual kid where english isn't their first language he's not made fun of for for speaking english in an accent 
And he also has a moment where he speaks in his first language with his family and it's just beautiful and tender and not, oh, he's speaking Mandarin and we're not subtitling it and it's just whatever. Like, we have two nibblings who, like, are, I wouldn't even say English is their first language. I would say they, they're bilingual in Mandarin. Their father and their grandparents on his side, Mandarin is their first language. And I don't think they've seen a kid's film where a character speaks the same language as them and looks like them. Mm-hmm. So it's radical even for now. Like, I feel like they would, like I said when we were watching it, I hope one of them dresses up as Data for Halloween one year. Because, mm-hmm. yeah. like, I don't know. So there's some problems with it. Mm-hmm. But there's also some really beautiful things in it. And I think the And be- I'm reclaiming Chunk. And I think the beautiful things about all aspects of the film outweigh the problems with it. As long as we can talk about the problems. I agree. And reclaim those. A- like, like, I think it's awesome that Chunk wants pizza and ice cream because I also always want pizza and ice cream. Well, you always want pizza. I always want ice cream. <laughs> yeah. And like, I also would be super stoked if I just went on an adventure and someone brought me pizza at the end. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah, I just, I think that's really good. And for the most part, this movie is just a cutie sweetie movie. Um, I have the cutest story to tell you about it, though. Okay. So, you know how they say shit a lot in the movie? Mm-hmm. So Data never says shit. Mm-hmm. One time he was supposed to say it, but Kihi Kwan said S-H-I-T <laughs> because he had promised his mom he would never use bad language. Oh, God. <laughs> so the character says, oh, S-H-I-T. That's amazing. Um, which is really, really cute. A like tragic story is that Sean Astin was allowed to keep the map from the film. And he kept it for years. And then one day his mom was cleaning out his room and thought it was just garbage and threw it out. Fuck. <laughs> I'd be so pissed. Like, what's this? What's this like ugly piece of paper? <laughs> she just threw it in the garbage. Mom, what the fuck? And then the, the last uh, funny thing I have for you is that, you know, Chunk's story about like fake puking on a whole audience. Stand by me reference. Steven Spielberg really did it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, I guess in the audio commentary for it. Somebody, maybe Chris Columbus says like, oh, it was just made up. And Steven Spielberg's like, no, I did that. That's that's from my life. And the fact that that wasn't in the Fablemans is a real misstep. Oh, big time. Why didn't we have like a massive puking scene? Like that's. That's so good. I fucking, I love that story. And there's one beat in it where Chunk just goes, oh, and this was, this was awful. And that continues (laughs) with the story. It's like he doesn't even want to be telling this story it's so good i love the character of chunk so much and it's kind of a sad story i was reading that people really liked the character of chunk and at the time and i'm sure now still maybe we just don't watch a lot of things like this having like the so-called fat kid who's funny Mm -hmm. was like a character but uh jeff cohen who plays chunk went through puberty and just lost all the weight. Like, I don't think he was trying to, I think his body just did that. And then he couldn't be that character. Yeah. Who they wanted to cast him as. Um, But the story that I read online is that Richard Donner just thought he was such a, like that it was really a shame he wasn't getting roles because he had such a good time working with him and thought he was really talented that he started helping him get like behind the scenes work. Mm. And then he was really compelled by, like Jeff Cohen was really compelled by things people were doing behind the scenes. And so he went and got a law degree and he became an entertainment lawyer. And now he's really a really successful entertainment lawyer who 
He's isn't he Kiki Kwan's manager? Uh, his agent, I think. His agent, like that's yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's really great. I yeah, because I feel like the quote unquote fat character of something like Stranger Things would be Dustin, but like that's not his character trait. No, no, I wouldn't say yeah. But like, if you're likening groups of friends in similar style uh, stories. That yeah, I D- guess um, Dustin would be that equivalent. Who would be like the mouth of Stranger Things? I guess Dustin's kind of the combo. Yeah. Of those two. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. Things are weird. Also, if you didn't know, uh, well, I know you do know that Cindy Lauper wrote a bop called The Goonies R, singular letter, good enough. But did you also know it has a 12 minute music video that tells the story of the movie of The Goonies? No, that's great. that's too much somebody had a lot of money (laughs) somebody did have a lot of money (coughs) honestly i'm really glad you picked this i really loved it i would watch it much more often somebody on letterboxd said that it is indiana jones for kids and i was like i don't know do you agree it's better than indiana jones because i don't give a piss for indiana jones i've seen enough of them now that i think i can say that two is enough Mm mm-hmm what makes me like something like the Goonies is the friendship and the camaraderie and the like working together and the like sweetie relationship between all of them. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like Indiana Jones has that heart. No, I don't care about the adventure. We could have had the same, like, I mean, look at stand by me. They're just going to look at a dead body. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't need the pirate adventure. I just want these group of kids hanging out together. Yeah. So kid Indiana Jones or not, I don't like Indiana Jones. And I do like the Goonies. And Goonies never say die and we're Goonies. Yeah. Officially. Now, as of this. Yeah, we did the oath. This recording. Blood oath. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, How did the Goonies make you feel? It made me feel so much heart and fun from this group of sweeties. Mm Mm-hmm. You? Just a childlike sense of whimsy and joy. It's, uh, it was lovely. I love Chunk. (laughs) Okay, you ready to talk about some dads? Yeah, dads of the week. Who's your bad dad nominee? So I don't know if it's going to be controversial because I didn't bring this up when we actually talked about the movie, but my bad dad nominee is Paul from It Follows. Pierre Gilchrist's character. Interesting, because I, I was kind of flirting with that idea too. Flirting? Ba, 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 ba. Tell me more. Okay, so the one thing when we rewatch It Follows that bothers me is his character. Because he's giving Ted from How I Met Your Mother energy. Yeah. He's giving, I'm a nice guy and you should sleep with me. I'm a nice guy and so you should date me. Like, that's the energy he's giving. And he like he feels entitled to Jay because he's like a quote unquote nice guy. And he's like whiny and petulant whenever she exerts her own sexual agency. Like he has this feeling of like what he deserves and what he thinks is best for her in a way that doesn't actually allow her to have her own agency. So put that in the context of being a parent, like that gives me, I'm going to control what my kids do because I know what's best for them. And I, even if they think they know what's best for them, I'm not going to let them do it because I know better. Mm -hmm. And I don't like that. Yeah. He is also one of my, lesser favorite parts of that of that movie um yeah i was gonna go into something but it's probably too plot heavy but that's a good choice um i chose bites 
from the elephant man. Yeah, I get that. Uh, I mean, he's a cruel person and he's, his cruelty is born out of greed and selfishness. And it becomes very evident throughout the film. Like he's not in it a lot, but when he crops up later on in the film, that he has a very clear lack of empathy. Yeah. For not just uh, the character of John Merrick, but for anyone that's not himself. Yeah. And that's really dangerous and really awful. And if you want to be my dad, you can frig off. Well, they're both pretty bad. Yeah. I'm going to leave it to you. Make the choice. I'm going to pick Paul because I feel like people need to know. I feel like it's obvious that Bites is a bad guy. Mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes we need to shine a light on some of the like not as obviously bad things. The Ted Mosby's of the, the Ted world. Mosby's the Ross of the world. Gellers. Yeah. The so. Jim from The Offices. Yep. So, yeah. Paul. Yeah. Don't, don't be, be our, our dad. dad. Rat dad. I pick Brand. Oh, okay. <laughs> or I pick somebody else. Another Goonie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um... I picked Brand because of like that moment I talked about between him and Mikey. There's just this kind and caring person. And though, you know, Brand is still a teenager with teenage tendencies, I feel like at Brand's core, he's there for his people. Mm-hmm. And he's protective of his people. And he also seems to exhibit this uh, awareness. Um of the people around him and what they're capable of. And I think that he gets to a point where he can implore that instead of stifle it out of protection. And he starts to open himself up. So it's kind of this process of learning how to adapt, which is great. That's a great father fodder. (laughs) What do you think? What do you think? Who do you think? Of course I pick chunk. Yeah. I think chunk's the hero of that goddamn movie. I mean, all the Goonies are pretty rad dads. Like, mm-hmm. you could make an argument for Data. I almost just put the Goonies as rad dads. I mean, like, I'm not mad about that if we did. But I don't think Mel's a very rad dad, personally. <laughs> just cut him out. <laughs> <laughs> but Chunk, he's just, first of all, he's so fully himself. And even when other people are being, like, kind of, particularly Mouth are being mouthy to him, he doesn't really let it bother him. And he's just like... Yeah, I want that fucking ice cream and like get me out of this freezer and yeah. you know and I feel like he shows a level of kindness and empathy and adventure throughout the film and like you know reflective regret over past actions. <laughs> yeah. That is really lovely. Like I don't know, I just I think he's so sweet and even like it would it would be a spoiler, but something that he says to Sloth at the end of the movie is pretty rad dad energy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How about this? We name Chunk rad dad and throw Brand into daddy. Is that appropriate? He's 17 in the movie. Um, <laughs> but I think younger versions of ourselves thought they were that his daddy. Okay, you're going to have to find a way to change the language on that maybe like. You know what? I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> it's a can of worms we won't open, but we will say here <laughs> that brand to younger versions of ourselves. He's a wheat woot for, for younger people. Yeah, very, very babely for the young youngins. But yeah, no, Chunk, I, I'm not mad at any Goonie being MVP. Okay. Yeah. 
Chunk. Be our, be our dad. dad. Rad Rack. Okay, Rad Rack. Uh, things are complicated in the world of Barbenheimer. Is Greta Gerwig feminist enough? Is Oppenheimer the best movie ever made? The answer to both is no, but that's okay. You know, too feminist, worst movie in the world, best movie in the world, subjective, whatever. But I think that something that's important to think about with Oppenheimer and with Barbie is when we look at these films and we have these critiques about kind of the limited perspective. So say people who are looking at Barbie and saying, you know, it's not inclusive enough of trans folks or, you know, it's a very white feminist film. Perfect. Love that. So watch some media from other perspectives, like watch I May Destroy You or Insecure, you know, something made by a woman of color. For Oppenheimer, I was like, you know, I'd really like to see some media about the atomic bomb from a Japanese perspective. Mm -hmm. So I went and I did some research. Grave of the Fireflies actually is one. Yeah, there you go. So we've we've covered that before. Um, I have a couple other now on my list of things I'd like to watch. But very accidentally, mm -hmm. we wanted to watch a movie, a fun movie that we've already covered on the show, and we decided to watch House. That's like a I could always watch it movie. A very Goonies-esque movie. Very well. Goonies-esque movie. Um, and the last, the first time we watched it, we watched it in Halifax with some friends, and I think they just bought it. Yeah. And then the second time we saw it, we saw it in the theater. Mm -hmm. So we hadn't watched it on Criterion Channel. And when we did, we like looked at what other like extras they had on the channel. And they had this little five minute video essay on it by Koganata, one of our favorite filmmakers. He made Columbus and After Yang. We haven't covered Columbus on the show, but we have covered After Yang, I believe, in episode three. Episode three. Early Go days. back, check it out. It's a yeah. good one. We talk about crying a lot. So he made this little video essay about House called Trick or Treat, where he puts forward the thesis that house is about the atomic bomb. And Sorry, it's called Trick or Truth. Trick or Truth. Yep. My brain just went straight to Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> trick or Truth. Um, and he puts forward the thesis that house is actually exploring the generational differences in how people respond to the tragedy of the atomic bomb in Japan. And this five-minute video essay moved me so deeply. It's on Vimeo. We'll put a link to it. It's very spoiler heavy for House. If you're never going to watch House, I think you could go ahead and watch the video essay and just know that there's some horror movie imagery. It's pretty absurd and it's pretty over the top and it's pretty arty, but there's some like severed fingers and stuff. <laughs> yeah. If you have seen House, highly recommend you watch this five minute video. I feel like in five minutes, Koganata manages to explore a Japanese perspective on the atomic bomb through his reading of House that first of all made me look at house in a new way and I want to watch it again immediately with that lens. And second of all was like a much needed perspective. I, I was really wanting to see after watching Oppenheimer and not seeing any perspective, but like Christopher Nolan's white PP perspective. <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with watching media from a limited lens, but I think if we're going to critique that limited lens, then the response should be, let's go watch read look at art, whatever, listen to music from people that are from a different lens about a similar topic. Mm -hmm. So that's the rad wreck. Um, seek out multiple points of view on the same topics. Specifically, watch this Koganata five-minute video essay if you're uh, in the conversation about Oppenheimer right now. Yeah, and if you haven't watched House, highly recommend House. 
because yeah, I've always kind of regarded it. We picked it for the very reason that it's this this fun, silly time. But now it's <laughs> so much more heft has been added to it through watching this Koganata short that it has made House even better for me. And I, I'm with you. I can't wait to rewatch it again through this new lens. Excellent, Radrack. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. You can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram and threads at baddad.raddad. You can get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. Usernames are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you'd share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for these goonies that are all right this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.